Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I want to take you to part one of a two-part conversation we're having around the topic of stewardship. In part one, Brady and I talk with Glenn Packiam and Daniel Grothy, both of whom are associate senior pastors here at New Life, about the pastoral challenges of discipling people into a life of stewardship. And then in part two, we talk with Chris Brown of the very popular Life Money Hope podcast about more of the practical dimensions of the same task. Both conversations were wide-ranging and very fun, and we think y'all are going to benefit a lot from them. And so with that, let's take you to part one. Brady, I want to get our conversation today started with you. What have you learned over the years about the pastoral challenge of talking about money in the church? I found that it's difficult for a lot of reasons. It's not easy. Uh, if it is easy, then there's probably you haven't thought through it well because every pastor faces a bit of insecurity when they talk about money. And we'll get into some of the reasons why later in the podcast, but this is a hard topic. It is difficult. It's hard for me, and I've been doing it for over 20 years now, and I've been asking people to give to the local church and to projects in the local church now for over 20 years, beginning at a little small church in West Texas. I remember I was 30 years old. I was a senior pastor. I remember the first time I stood up in front of my little church in Hereford, Texas, and asked for money, and I just felt this knot in my stomach. And and I was wondering why. I've talked to him about sin. I've talked to him about repentance. I've, I've covered all the other big topics in the Bible. But when I got to the topic of money, something stirred up in my heart, this nauseous feeling, this insecurity, this good old-fashioned fear surfaced in me, and I couldn't figure out why. And here I am now. I'm 51 now, and I'm pastoring a larger church in Colorado. And still, even today, when I stand in front of the church, I get suspicious stares. I get those folded, armed looks from people when I talk about money. I think it causes me, first of all, to evaluate my motives more than any other topic. You know, I'm prayerful about every sermon, but if I know I'm going to talk about money, it's almost like the week before I preached that sermon, I go through this uh, serious introspection, this inspection of my own heart to make sure, to make really sure that I'm asking people to give for the right reasons. And I think that's a good process for us to go as pastors, but I do think pastors wrestle with this. I've often said that the two things that pastors don't want to talk about is money and sex because it's so difficult and it's so uncomfortable and it arouses so many suspicions. But money and sex are the two things that are wrecking our people's hearts more than any other things really in, in the culture right now. You see broken sexuality all over our culture and you see the side effects of that. And you see broken finances in people's houses and homes and their personal lives, and it's really wrecking them. So it's almost like our enemy, the great accuser of our faith, knows that if he can keep us from talking about these two topics, that it's going to keep people from being fully mature and fully discipled. And so I think as pastors, we have to overcome this fear. We're going to talk about that a bit today. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons why we feel this insecurity, why we feel this angst when we're talking about money. I think there's some real solutions we're going to give you today, but I think this is a great conversation. I hope pastors are leaning in right now because I, I think we can be helpful. At the heart of discipleship is inviting people to transfer allegiance to King Jesus and to, to name the other allegiances in their life 
that have occupied the throne of their hearts. And when you name money and sex, Brady, I mean, the third one in the, the unholy trinity is power, you know? And so all three of those things are the age-old temptations. They have to do with how we orient and order our lives. And so when you start talking about those things, it gets personal because people feel like something's being threatened here, you know? Their own ability to direct and determine their own lives is being challenged as it should be. Yes, it's an issue of worship. Money is an issue of worship. And I think in the 21st century American church, we've made it a conversation about charitable giving. And the difficulty there is then we're in the place of power. We're in the place of, oh, we should just bless God, bless his heart. You know, God needs a, we throw him a bone and uh, thank God we get a tax benefit. Look, I'm okay with the tax benefit, but at the point at which worship becomes charitable giving, giving our money becomes about charity rather than about laying our lives on the altar as a living sacrifice, we have lost. Uh, We are in the seat of power and God is not Lord. So I want to just jump off of that real quick, Daniel. Uh, You bring up a really great point here. I I think all of us, we have organizations that we belong to or things that we support. I have radio programs that every once in a while, you know, every three months they'll go, hey, you know, your $15 will keep us on the air. And so I contribute to that. And that's great. That's wonderful. But in the kingdom. Do you really support radio programs every three months of just wondering? I, I actually show. do. When Wikipedia asks me for money, I Dang. do. Just so you all know. <laughs> the most generous man we know. But in the kingdom, it is a different thing. So I wonder if we can step back here and try to come up with a description of the relationship between generosity and life in the kingdom. How does generosity fit in our discipleship? This is not just a matter of supporting the things you care about, but about being called into something bigger. First of all, generosity is at the core of our faith. I mean, you cannot read past a few pages of the Bible without seeing generosity surface. You see giving. You see generosity in the life of Moses. You see generosity in the life of Abraham, David. All the great figures of the Hebrew Testament were generous people. Generosity was central to the creeds, central to the church. You read Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, when they are describing the local church in both of those passages in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which is, you know, an iconic passage of scripture describing the local church in the first century. There was a whole passage about bringing their money to the apostles' feet. Uh, There was in Acts chapter 4, when Luke is again describing the activity of the local church, there's a passage about bringing money. So money and generosity and stewardship are central to the teachings of Jesus. They were central in the life of the local church from the very beginning. Somewhere along the way, it got hijacked, and it got hijacked by our capitalism. It got hijacked by our greed. There is a reason why pastors are notoriously insecure about money, and that's because we have been notoriously, let me just use this, corrupt in some ways in the way money has been managed by church leaders. In some ways, every time I talk about money, I'm having to live down the poor behavior and actions of people I have never met. I'm having to live down bad decisions from pastors who preceded me, uh, from pastors who have publicly and scandalously misused money. So true. And so I, I stand there as a representative of every pastor that everyone in my congregation knows about. I am the face of the pastoral vocation when I stand in front of the church and ask for money. And so while my heart may be pure, while my motives may be pure when I'm asking for money, I know that the suspicion and the cynicism has been rightfully earned. 
It is right that they should be suspicious of us. It is right that people should be cynical of us because we have not always handled money properly. We've not always blessed the poor in our community. We've not always helped the widow. We've not always brought that money to the feet of God and asked him to really lead us in the spending of it. And so there's so many stories that are public knowledge of how pastors are living extravagant lives, lavish lifestyles, or how that money is being misspent inside the church. And so we have to be aware that we're staring in the face of a bad reputation. So here's the only way to get a good reputation. This is uh, the words from my dad. The only way to regain trust and reputation is do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. And so that doesn't mean I'm going to stop asking for money. It means that I'm going to be more aware of how I spend it. And I'm going to be very transparent. I'm going to be forthright. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell people exactly how I'm going to spend it. And then when I make a promise, I'm going to do it. One of the things, let me just say this practically, a few years ago, we made a decision to be a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Now, there's about 300,000 churches in America. There's only about 100 churches that are members of the ECFA, and I really recommend this organization. They're fantastic. So we are members of the ECFA, and the reason we became members of the ECFA is because I had to rebuild trust here at New Life 10 years ago. We were going through scandal. We were going through having to rebuild our reputation, and so one of the things we decided as elders was to be members of the ECFA, which then in the nonprofit world represents the highest level of accountability that we could possibly attain to. And we're today still members of the ECFA, and we have that little seal on our website. I can't tell you how many givers have told me that the reason they now trust their money into the hands of our local church is because we went through that process. And so if you're in a church right now where you're having to rebuild your reputation, there are some practical ways that you can rebuild your reputation. You don't have to live with a bad reputation for the rest of your life. You can rebuild it. That's the grace you know, that God gives us to rebuild our reputations. Anyway, so I think pastors can lean in and help do this if they'll just be honest and forthright. I think money's so hard to talk about in the church because we've forgotten what we're a part of. The church just sort of, we, we're another one of the organizations spamming people for money, at least in people's minds. But when you remember what the church is, the family of God, the household of faith, well, then you can start to compare that to what a family ought to be like. And it's really weird after a family dinner when there's six people in the family and there's one person sitting at the table while everybody else cleans up. That's just a bad feeling. When five people are helping with the laundry, but one person's sitting around. When five people are helping clean the house, but one person's sitting around. When you're a part of the family, everyone chips in. Everyone contributes their strength. Everyone lends to the overall good. And so when we can help our church understand not to give into the spirit of the age, which sort of divorces church from family, but, but remind the church that we are the household of God. And when all of us bring our strength into the storehouse, we can do so much more together. It's huge. It's so huge. And I, I appreciate so much even the conversation about recognizing where we're at and where we need to repair things and how do we, you know, reframe the question. I mean, because to the question, oh, why should I give my money to this church? There's a practical way of answering that. You can trust us. We've shown ourselves to be trustworthy. But there is a sense in which we are trying to reframe the question for people to see church differently, like what you're saying, Daniel. I would also like to say that part of our role is to help people see 
giving differently. So gift and giving are a thread throughout all of Scripture. God is the most generous giver we've ever known. Uh, The world is full of examples of abundance. I mean, beauty is wasteful. There's stuff that didn't need to be. We didn't need to have the, the, the pleasure of our senses, of things tasting good. All of those things are excessive gifts that God gives. Jesus didn't need to multiply food for the 5,000 with leftovers. He didn't need to do that. I mean, if you could multiply, surely you can calculate and count, you know, but there's always a surplus with God. And I think when you understand that even at the heart of the New Testament, the word for grace is the word gift, that all of a sudden now at the very core of what it means to be a Christian is to say, I am responding to and receiving a gift then that turns you into someone who becomes like God. You yourself become a giver. I want to read a quote here real quick, guys. Uh, Recently, Glenn, you put this little book in my hand by Henry Nouwen, who a lot of us have read and respect and love dearly. The book is entitled A Spirituality of Fundraising, which is the last book I think I ever expected to see out of the Henry Nouwen (laughs) canon of books, right? But this little book is so profound because it gets to all of these issues about how generosity and giving are not something tangential or extra to our life as as people of faith, but it's actually part of our communal expression. So I want to read this and then just talk a little bit about all of this generosity as a form of ministry. This is what Nowen says. He says, as a form of ministry, fundraising is as spiritual as giving a sermon, entering a time of prayer, visiting the sick, or feeding the hungry. So fundraising has to help us with our own conversion. So we're changed in this. Are we willing as leaders to be converted from our fear of asking, our anxiety about being rejected or feeling humiliated, our depression when someone says, no, I'm not going to get involved in your project. When we have gained the freedom to ask without fear, to love fundraising as a form of ministry, then fundraising will be good for our spiritual life. When those with money and those who need money share a mission, we see a central sign of new life in the spirit of Christ. When all of this happens, we can indeed say with Paul, there is a new creation. So there is this sharing here, like fundraising as a form of ministry creates community around kingdom and the new creation breaks into the world. So can we talk for a second about what we've learned here at New Life about how to address this pastorally? What are the practical things that we do to help educate our people in understanding generosity in this way? And reframing, talking about Daniel's point, reframing generosity away from the spirit of the age. What are our best practices here? What have we learned? I think I've learned that if you don't attach a deep sense of mission to the ability to give, then people do see it as a donor. They see themselves as donors. But when there's a deep sense of mission with the giving, they see themselves as ministers. They see themselves as co-laborers with you. And the, I think that not to trick, but the, the wisdom of asking for money is having the wisdom to know when there's a real sense of mission and how their money will help accomplish a God sense of mission. In other words, when we're really paying attention to what's happening in our city and our congregation, and we become aware of a need that requires money. And a lot of the ministry that we see happening, a lot of it does require money. Some of it doesn't. I mean, some of the things don't require money, but a lot of things we see happening in our city, the brokenness that's happening in our city requires dollars. For example, we realized there were 800 families that were homeless in our city. Now, we can call prayer meetings about that, and we did pray about that. We can go down and comfort the homeless, certainly, take them sandwiches, but if we're really going to help them get out of a cycle of homelessness, then we needed to provide apartment complexes. We need to give them housing. 
Well, the last time I heard, they're not giving away houses. You have to buy those things. And so when we told the church, listen, we have an opportunity to buy an apartment complex to help single moms and their kids get off the streets, we raised the money almost immediately. In fact, I just got a report this week that our giving for our Dream Centers was up 38% last year. That's higher than anything we have going on around here at New Life. And the reason is I think people are hungry for the local church to have a deep sense of mission. People will give their money when they know it's going to kingdom work. And we throw that word around, you know, give to the kingdom. We've used it so much that people have lost its sense of meaning. So you actually have to dig a little deeper in that language and say, let me tell you what the coming kingdom looks like. The coming kingdom looks like us taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. And I love James 1.27, and it says to keep your heart unspotted or unfettered, unfiltered. Yeah, yeah, Don't let your heart become contaminated with the things of the world, but take care of widows and orphans. Pure religion is that. And we have to describe that in a more beautiful way to our church. And when we do, they give. And that's the thing about money is there's no other way to turn something earthly and common like money into something eternal other than the kingdom mission. That's the only way. I mean, think about what a great transformation that is. What machine, what device is there where you put in something common and natural and out comes something eternal? That's what investing in the kingdom does. So when you give, we're actually giving people an opportunity to use their worldly wealth as a way of accomplishing eternal gain. And so that reframes the whole purpose of money. Nobody looks at money and is in love with the cash or the dollar bill. Everybody looks at money and thinks, this is what it will buy me. It'll buy me a better house, maybe happiness, maybe a vacation. But what we are saying to them is, no, look at this as something that God can use to rescue people, to uh, reveal himself to people. This is what the world can look like when Jesus is king and your money can be transformed to accomplish that. I remember being a young pastor and got uh, sent up to receive the first offering. I was 23 years old and, okay, Daniel, go. You know, you can, so I went up and I almost apologized about the offering. Oh, you know, if, if you feel like, and I'm sorry, and no pressure. And I came down and I remember a wise old man coming up next to me and he's not on the pastoral staff. He's a member of the church. So he had something unique to say to me and he pulled me aside. He said, Daniel, I want to encourage you never to apologize about the offering again, because this is not about keeping the lights on at the church. This is about you giving people an invitation to become more like Jesus. Yes. This is for them. And so don't ever apologize about another offering again. I'll never forget that as a young pastor that you look at Jesus and he's always coming to these people and he's saying, Hey, you know, you can come follow me. And to some people, he said, go sell all you have and give to the poor because your heart's tangled up in this. And you look at 1 Timothy 6, and it's a familiar passage, but it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content. And then he goes on to say, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so with people who have money, we've got to keep reminding ourselves we have to be careful with this because this thing can destroy us if we're not careful. One of the ways in which the spirit of the age has crept into the church is precisely on that point, that we think that the goal of life is accumulation. It's getting more and more stuff. We're transfixed by that idea even in the church. And so this is a discipleship issue just to the extent that Jesus is calling us into the pattern of his own life 
which is a self-giving, self-abandoning life. And that's part of the pastoral challenge here is letting people know that true life is found in the abandonment of your strength for the good of others and for the growth of God's kingdom. Some of this also touches on, I just want to explore this for a moment here, our relationship with people in the church who do have significant means. And now one draws attention to this in his book, A Spirituality of Fundraising. He says that one of the things that you see in the scriptures is that God has a real heart for the poor, people who are dispossessed. And that's right and true and good. The flip side of that is sometimes what can happen to us is that we have a prejudice against people that are rich. And so we see them only as problems to be solved or potential donors rather than co-laborers with us in the kingdom. So guys, I'm wondering what you learned and, and Brady, you've been at this longer than any of us. So you have more to say on this than us, but I'm curious what you've learned about developing authentic relationship with people that have significant means and not valuing them just for their money, but also being aware of that as a pastor, that that's part of your responsibility to them is to call them into greater mission and purpose. What have you learned on that? Well, I do have some friends who have through hard work and you know, good fortune have made a lot of money and they're very wealthy people. And, you know, what they have told me over the years is they say, Pastor Brady, tell us when there's opportunities to give. And I've learned that givers want to give. And so I've learned not to be ashamed or embarrassed or hesitant about telling people with finances about opportunities to give because givers want to give and they can't give if they don't know about the opportunities. So first of all, you're right that the relationship has to be based on shared trust and mutual love and respect. And if you see them as a pocketbook or you see them as a big checkbook, then you've already lost and you will never ever gain their trust. And they sniff that out pretty quick because wealthy people are constantly ask for money. And so uh, they are very, very sensitive to uh, motivations for relationships. And so I've learned over the time just to treat everyone the same, you know, ask the same questions of them that you would ask of the single mom in your church. How's your family? How's your health? What are you doing for fun? What's going on in your life that I can pray for it? Those are the same questions I would ask a multimillionaire that I would ask a single mom in my church who's struggling. So ask the same questions of the same people. However, when there are opportunities to give, don't be embarrassed or hesitant to go to people who have been successful and say, hey, there are some opportunities that are coming up in our near future. Would you like to hear about them? And if they say, no, right now, I'm not, this is not a good time for me, then let it be, let it go. But most often they will say, yes, thank you for telling me about it. When can I find out more information? And then simply tell them about the opportunities and leave it at that. Trust that the Holy Spirit will do its work. You don't have to be forceful about it. You don't have to be manipulative at all, ever. But givers love to give. And if we don't tell them about opportunities to give, then we're not doing them any favors either. So treat them as human beings, love them sincerely like you would everyone else, but don't be hesitant to ask when the opportunity arises, when it's a good thing. That's what I've learned, those two things. In fact, the asking straightforwardly is evidence of the trust and evidence of the relationship. You know, the hesitancy might be due to our own kind of insecurities, which I've experienced. I mean, when we were going through a thing at New Life Downtown a few years ago where we needed like an office space, a mid-sized meeting space. I mean, that those things are less easy to sell to people, right? But that actually helps you evaluate it. For me, it made me think, well, why am I trying to sell? I shouldn't be trying to sell, you know? And you start to remind yourself that we're all part of this household together. We're all part of this family together. 
And space matters, place matters. I don't say to my wife and my kids, we're a family, who cares where we live? You know, we don't need a house. No, a house is where a family takes place. And so even if, you you know, you find yourself at a situation where you're not doing some great fancy outreach to the city that's easily, you know, recognized as kingdom mission and all you're talking about is carpet or whatever, at the same time, we shouldn't be hesitant about those things because that's a way of saying to people, this is our house, this is our place, and every people need a place, you know, each group of people. With the minute or so that we have left here, Brady, give us a couple parting thoughts to some of our pastors who are listening today. Well, first of all, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed, and don't beg. It is a moment of trust when you ask for money. I just did this. I mean, I just asked for some money from our church members to help us buy a building for our Spanish congregation. And at the same time, we have some really old carpet in our big building up here that needs replacing. And I just ask, and and it was scary and difficult, and I didn't like it. It's not something I wake up every morning, you know, wanting to go do, but it's necessary, and I should not be fearful about it. And it requires me to pray and trust in a way that doesn't require me to do that in other ways. I mean, so this requires something out of my soul, out of my humanity. That's good for me. It's good for pastors to humble themselves and ask appropriately. And I think it's good for our soul. It's good for the souls of our people to hear about opportunities opportunities. And thank God for the abundance of resources he's placed in our laps and thank the Lord for the opportunity to give. What a joy it is to be givers, right? I mean, the most joyful stories I have, some of the most joyful stories I have as a pastor and a Christ follower are the times when I got the opportunity and the joy to give. And I just hope people catch that, the joy of giving and the joy of of trust. And uh, so those are things that I hope resonate with people as they listen today. That does it for part one of our two-part series on stewardship. Be sure to join us next week for part two. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you.